This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 12. Recap of the series so far. This is the final essay of the Philosophical Guide to Self-Development series. To recap what we've discussed so far, we began by looking at how the West is undergoing a crisis of meaning due to the collapse of the Aristotelian Christian worldview. We argued the Aristotelian Christian worldview collapsed because of the scientific revolution and increasingly global multiculturalism of the 21st century. We also pointed out that the dominant scientific worldview has no place for meaning, subjectivity or consciousness and thus modern individuals are stuck between a meaningless, reductionist view of themselves as merely a collection of atoms or an alternative decadent romanticism that denies the worldview of science in favour of feelings and hedonic spirituality. In Essay 10 we discussed the characters of these two camps as fundamentalists and nihilists. Fundamentalists who cling to outdated, low-resolution pictures of the world, and nihilists who attempt to embrace and live with the chaos without enforcing any order on it. In this series, I've argued both are maladaptive responses to the collapse of the dominant worldview, and that the adaptive response is actually captured in the hero metamythology. We spent quite a long time sketching out the general pattern of the hero metamythology on how one confronts chaos and makes new habitual order, and why the hero metamythology is a narrative description of John Verveke's relevance realisation. So we won't go into that too much in this essay, although you can check out uh, some of the other ones if you're interested in it. Like most of my work, this series is aimed at non-academics particularly for people who have experienced alienation, despair, nihilism, meaningless, and other existential issues, to present an alternative and more viable interpretation of life. This aim presents challenges and limitations on delving into ontology and the philosophical weeds, which I've realised as writing this go deeper than I even thought. I hope in the future to lay out more clearly the proposed ontology, epistemology and ethics as a complete philosophy here, But the importance of this series is a synthesis of philosophy and myth for meaning-making in life. Our interpretation of life, ourselves, and our growth and development in the world has profound consequences for one's emotional well-being, success, and satisfaction in life. Philosophy and myth are two ways of upgrading the sophistication of one's interpretation of life, albeit on different levels of analysis. To discuss an interpretation of life, one has to address the existential questions at the bottom of that interpretation. Questions like, who are we? What is human nature, function, identity? Who should we be? Ethical questions of virtues and vices, desirable and non-desirable characteristics, and ultimately the good life. And finally, how we go from one to another, questions of individual transformation, which myth and narrative exclusively deals with, and straddles the line between generalizable stories of transformation, a universal human nature, and one's particular individual existence. That's where the tension lies between our individual, highly contextual lives, and then these broader intergenerational generalizable patterns of successful adaptations, which we call myths. And I believe it is the work of artists and philosophers to unite the two into one. 
In the last three essays of the series, we looked at Peterson's synthesis of René Magritte's Son of Man painting as an image of the modern meaning crisis-stricken individual, akin to the fallen individual in the Christian story. We discussed how this character was trapped within a narrow categorical identity and their vision blocked by the knowledge of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, and which offered them no path to genuine transcendence and hence meaning and wisdom in life. In the following essay, we argued that meaning is not an epiphenomenon, but is in fact the instinct that orients us to the zone of proximal development where self-transformation takes place. It is at that border of order and chaos where we experience deep meaning and where the myths and stories of heroes are aiming us to pursue meaning and where significant error recognition and error correction resulting in personal transformation can take place. In keeping with Platonic philosophy, we argue that these personal transformations through the cultivation of virtues, like character traits or skills, cause a general increase in wisdom, which decreases self-destruction, self-deception, and therefore illusion, connecting one to reality. In this sense, transcendence leads to truth through wisdom and meaning, and is not just a psychological improvement, but an epistemological improvement. The Christian Neoplatonic worldview has a levelled ontology, and our connection to reality is driven by our ethical development, which is a powerful proposition. In this final essay, we will look at a modern path to transcendence that can exist within a naturalistic framework based on Verveke's work, and offer a solution to René Magritte's Son of Man problem with a different perspective on the old idea of human beings being made in the image of God. Then finally, we will spend some time reflecting on how a modern path to transcendence through cultivating wisdom and meaning can shift education, culture, institutions, and the future of human development. A modern path to transcendence. In the last essay, we looked at how metacognition affords us transcendence through the internalization of others' perspectives on our own perspective. We discussed important spiritual exercises like internalizing the sage and stoicism, which uses a person of admiration as an internal model of optimal behavior, and hence in internalizing the perspective of that admirable person on our own perspective affords us self-correction and transformation. Similarly, Peterson argues that hero myths are abstracted stories from the lives of admirable sages and heroes. We tell stories about people who lived exceptional lives, and then over time, these stories are blended together to create a generalizable pattern of action that sums up a successful human life. In this way, myths also offer us portals to transcendence by providing examples of virtue and vice which we can model ourselves on, though in a dramatic and narrative sense. We internalize other people's perspectives to change our habits and patterns of seeing. And these new habits become character over time and transform the internal constraints regulating our growth and development. This is the essence of self-correction. This self-correction is not merely a psychological improvement as previously mentioned, but an increase in one's ability to connect with real patterns in the world, and hence has epistemological consequences. This is important because the need for a virtue tradition isn't just ethical in some abstract sense of just doing the right and wrong things, but is really to do with developing our intellectual vision, our understanding of life, and can't be done through a method, it has to be done through a transformation. The Platonist leveled ontology, which is multi-leveled, involves not just deconstructing reality into its constituent parts in a reductionist manner, 
but also observing the a priori constraints which are at play in regulating our growth and development, and hence the agency we have to influence these constraints. Philosophically speaking, the ancients covered this one and didn't fall prey to the one-sided reductionist bias of modern philosophy. The significance for the individual is that ethical transformation leads one to truth, not just the scientific method. By transforming yourself, you become more like reality. You self-realize. This philosophy, interpretation of life, justifies our connection to reality and that we can qualitatively improve our connection to reality through this building of wisdom and virtue, tracked by meaning. In Verveke's argument for strong transcendence, the answer to the meaning crisis is contact with what is most real. St. Augustine makes a similar argument when he says each of us has a God-shaped hole in our hearts. The hole being God-shaped constrains what will fill that hole, and Verveke argues that this is a connection to what is most real. Within a Neoplatonist ontology, patterns of mind and reality overlap, and therefore, the more real patterns you perceive, the more real you become, you self-realize. So therefore, there are ontological levels which you can climb in your life. The reintegration of the spiritual into the modern scientific worldview can allow us to start to afford individuals genuine transcendence, and hence the ability to transform themselves, which is deeply meaningful and promotes agency and autonomy, which is sorely missing in the complexity of the modern world. Uh, heroes, sages, saints, and pilgrims. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the more often and steadily we reflect upon them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. I do not seek or conjecture either of them as if they were veiled obscurities or extravagances beyond the horizon of my vision. I see them before me and connect them immediately with the consciousness of my existence. Can't. Earlier in the series, I used Rennie McGrath's Son of Man as an example of the modern meaning crisis-stricken individual who is trapped in their categorical structure and incapable of genuine transcendence. Well, I consider the poorly photoshopped image in the text, which you can read in the description, to be a solution to that problem. Instead of the apple in front of the face blocking vision like in the Son of Man, we have a set of interlocking wedding rings, a commitment. Soren Kierkegaard describes the ethical life as a marriage of past, present and future. Similarly, Nietzsche made promise-making the quintessential human moral activity of the sovereign individual in the genealogy of morals. This is because a promise is to make a certain state of affairs in the future a reality, and so requires genuine agency, control over the passage of time, which we often assume we have, but probably do not. The ethical individual is bound, committed, but committed to what? to a particular higher-order principle. For Nietzsche, this is freedom, but for ancient philosophers and Christians, what is also represented by these interlocking rings is the good, the union of logos and ontos. As Verveke describes the good, it is the continually held promise of the wedding of intelligibility and reality, which we can experience ourselves. To describe it in another language which we've established already, this commitment is like that of Socrates and the philosophers to turning one's soul to the good. An ontological and ethical commitment to the pursuit of truth, humility and gratitude, and that by some miracle human beings are connected to reality. It is a journey motivated by love to experience the loving recognition of the true, the good and the beautiful, which used to be called reason in philosophy.
The stars in the background are meant to communicate that the journey toward the good is brought on by awe, wonder, and admiration. And in being so struck, we are called to imitate what we admire most. Motivation is no longer just a dreary, bureaucratic day at the beachside, but an awe-inspiring vision of the good. It is in that heights that we look up to, that we aspire, when we imagine, when we dream, that pulls us up into an expanded existence. As Plato said, philosophy begins in wonder. He also was the first, well, Pythagoras was the first to name philosophers as lovers of wisdom. And it is often forgotten that the love is primary. The love is the motivational force that guides one to wisdom. However, Joseph Ratzinger writes that the Catholic view, truth is the middle term that reconciles the authority of God and the subjectivity of conscience. The latter, when authentically free, cannot but reveal the truth established by the former. Unlike Nietzsche, in the Catholic view, reason alone can't create its own values, which are instilled by God into human hearts. Human freedom finds its authentic and complete fulfillment precisely in the acceptance of that law of God. So when practical reason is free to exercise its participation in the divine law, then in the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he does not impose upon himself, but which holds him to obedience. This is a very important point, and many other philosophers have picked on it as well, like St. Augustine, who believed that through an inward turn, by getting to the bottom of one's own being, one reached the ground of being itself. And in observing that objective within the subjective, one came to understand the absolute source of values that are not relative um, or subjective, but in fact are part of the order of the universe itself. In this way, we can see that the rift between the starry sky above and the moral law within, which is so present in Kant's philosophy and the Cartesian splitting of object and subject, is in fact an illusion. It is the presence of the beautiful, the good, and the true that point to the true nature of reality itself. The final part of the image is the suit, which we discussed with Magritte's painting represents a typical conservative 1950s grey man who wears a uniform to disappear from the world. However, this suit in the image is taken from René Magritte's painting The Pilgrim and is an attempt to change the narrow market economy identity of a mature adult into that of an awestruck pilgrim to the good. For Magritte, the suit represents enculturation, but enculturation into a stale socio-economic identity that lacks any real connection to transcendence or reality. The alternative, I believe, is the identity of the hero and the pilgrim and the saint and the sage. The identity of the pilgrim is integral to this new way of thinking. Jonathan Pajot explains a pilgrimage is a physical enactment of going to a holy place as a symbol for the spiritual journey of getting closer to God. The notion of life as a pilgrimage decentralizes religion, as is already happening in our rad- radically deinstitutionalizing world, and provides a meta-identity that can scaffold the individual hero's journeys that we take part in. The pilgrim identity highlights the through line to an individual life that can join together the often disparate and irreconcilable moments that have no continuous narrative order, which is the norm for a modern meaning crisis individual. And this is because we have lost the through line to our lives, which is God. I encountered this problem in a very real way recently in my own life while trying to compose an autobiographical account of the first 30 years of my life. Where do you start? Generally, you'll start with memories and maybe get a few down, but soon that becomes muddled. 
because why these memories and not others? And then once you start to focus on chronological order, they start to make no sense. It's just a meaningless jumble of events that happen to you. Why would you focus on one random Tuesday in school or a series of memories? What is it that connects them together? What is the relevance and importance of the whole thing? One quickly realises that to write an account of your life, you need a through line to organise it. And then the question arises of what is the proper through line? Is my life all about being Irish? Is it about being a young man? Is it about technology in the modern world or drinking? I boiled over this for quite some time. But what was apparent was whatever I chose would be the highest organising principle of my life and the lens through which I saw myself, and so, and every event, and so it held tremendous power. And really what the question was is, what is the highest good? What is the most significant value? And so the traditional answer, which is God, came. And so it became apparent to me that there was a need for an organising through line to one's life, to create narrative order across time, and that the only through line that I could choose that actually worked was God. And thus I was beginning my non-consensual journey into becoming a Christian. And if you ever sit down and try and create a narrative order for your life, you will need a through line, and not any through line will do. And perhaps then you'll be in the same situation I was, and forced to acknowledge the God which you have rejected and insulted for so long. I would suggest rather boldly that this poorly photoshopped photo is meant to be a symbol of the image of God which human beings are supposedly made in, and which gives us transcendent value. In Maps of Meaning, Peterson describes the hero as the son of God. Behind every particular that is historical adventurer, explorer, creator, revolutionary, and peacemaker, lurks the image of the son of God, who sets his impeccable character against tyranny and the unknown. This image is a symbolic representation of the pattern of action that categorizes the hero the abstracted and generalized pattern of successful adaptation. So in the image, there's a peculiar tripartite nature in that it's our origin, who we are really supposed to be and what makes us uniquely human. Our value comes from the fact that we are made in the image of true being and reality. But it is also our destination, our destiny, reunion with that image in which we are made, which is a kind of self-actualization or self-realization. And hence, that suggests a journey in between. And so that the whole image is a bit like the self, not a static individual identity, but more like a metaphor for life. Approaching a meta-narrative. Thought through my eyes, signatures of all things I'm here to read. Sea spawn and sea rack, the nearing tide, that rusty boot. Snot green, blue silver, rust, coloured signs, limits of the diaphane, but he adds, in bodies. Then he was aware of them, bodies before of them coloured how, by knocking his sconce against them, sure, go easy. Bald he was and a millionaire, maestro de colour, chaisano. Limit of the diaphane in, why in? Diaphane, a diaphane. If you can put your five fingers through it, it is a gate. If not, a door. Shut your eyes and see. James Joyce, Ulysses. In the beginning of this series, we started talking about attention and that morality begins in attending to what you should attend to. Perhaps we've gone the long way round to return to such a simple truth, but this is necessary because it is the point of the hero's journey. 
The hero's journey is a series of deaths and rebirths, transformative learning experiences, which let go of vices, illusions, dreams, moral imperfections, to see as one ought to see. The Platonic philosophers and alchemists really understood that we must not look but close our eyes and replace the faculty of vision for another, what is called the beatific vision. The ultimate goal of the quest is a better form of vision. The point of the death and rebirth of transformation, updating one's attentional value hierarchy, is that it allows us to see better what is once hidden right before our eyes. As Plotinus writes, no eye that has not become like the sun will see the sun, nor will anyone who is not beautiful see the beautiful. In keeping with Aristotle's conformity theory of knowledge, we know by becoming. So we must become like the sun to see the sun, become like the beautiful to see the beautiful. The three transcendentals, the true, the good and the beautiful, point to God's nature, the nature of ultimate reality. God is the through line, not present in particular, but organising everything we see. As the Upanishads say, God is not an object of sight, but that by which we see. Like what we discussed with Plotinus and the sculpture, the sculpture has a vision of beauty and good and truth, and then works to make the marble and the vision one. The same is true here of the work of self-development or self-realization. We attain the vision and then we work to become like the vision. That is why this journey has to be begun by faith, because faith takes us on the road but is not the destination. The understanding and vision that we gain are what gives meaning and value to the journey. The journey which is begun by faith ends in vision, so that is why a commitment is needed first. Understanding is intellectual vision. Seeing God clearly with the mind's eye is the goal and meaning of faith. Spiritual life is about training the intellectual vision to see what it cannot see yet. The word contemplation comes from a temple, which actually comes from the Latin word for a part of the sky that you look up to see the signs from, the gods. To contemplate is to look up towards the divine. Beauty calls us forward on a transcendent journey to encounter the good, and the product of this adventure is truth, which is a better form of vision. In summary, the image of God as our fundamental identity is shockingly egalitarian for the time, and suggests not just our origin, but also our destination, and by suggesting a destination, a destiny, a journey in between, an awestruck pilgrimage to the good. The pilgrimage is everywhere now, we are all spiritual pilgrims looking for our spiritual home. I have re-represented the image of God crudely in the above image because I think it sums up this philosophy of self-development, or probably more accurately self-realization, which I have been exploring, which isn't just a static belief system of propositions, but in fact a dynamic and meaningful spiritual way of life, a journey that has begun with faith, a faith that leads to better vision, and a better vision is a better self. In conclusion, this series was in many ways doomed to difficulty from the start. I quickly realised that each arena I skipped through was a book or an entire field of study. So I hope to make up what is missing in accuracy with generalising well. We are in a time that requires integration, integrating science and spirituality, mind and body, and being able to see the union beyond the irreconcilable opposites that are so present in our perception. In my own way, I've tried to shed some light on that emerging worldview that puts meaning and wisdom rightfully at the centre of human concerns. There are so many levels to the death of God and the meaning crisis, and thus there are just as many levels to the rebirth. What seems foolish and half-baked today will hopefully herald a better tomorrow. 
But if this worldview is correct, there will be no saving grace. We are damned, forsaken, fallen, and our atonement requires sacrifice, moral courage, wisdom, heroism, and a rediscovery of those lost values which sound so sentimental to the cynical, nihilistic, modern world. There's nothing easy about any of this. There will need to be revolutions in education, in the academy, arts and culture, internet and our own hearts, new institutions and reinventions of the old ones with a focus on wisdom and meaning. The advent of artificial intelligence and persuasive technology have brought a definitive end to human unconsciousness, and we must now know ourselves in order to survive. There has never been a more serious bottleneck than in the next hundred years, and our individual thoughts and actions will be magnified to unprecedented importance the more dramatic the time becomes. That's the good and bad news. So, the work of a virtue tradition of the humanities now is to turn our souls to the good and to help us see as we ought to see. It is a treacherous journey which we must embark on. And Peterson argues that the great hero's journey of our lives is ethical and that that ethic starts with our attention, with what we value. So, having said that, what is it you should be paying attention to that you're not? 